Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Char Miller, the W.M. Keck Professor of Environmental Analysis and History at Pomona College and a senior fellow at the Pinchot Institute for Conservation. Char has recently published a new book called West Side Rising, How San Antonio's 1921 Flood Devastated a City and Sparked a Latino Environmental Justice Movement. It's a fascinating look back at how decades of environmental discrimination led to a new type of organizing and activism among the city's residents, even before the term environmental justice was widely used. Char will help us understand not just the history of the movement, but how it has blossomed over time to shape the politics and policies of today and tomorrow. Stay with us. Okay, Char Miller from Pomona College out in California. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you so much, Daniel, for having me. So, Char, we're going to talk about a new book that you have called uh, West Side Rising, and uh, we'll tell folks more about that book in just a couple minutes. But first, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues. So what sort of steered you into this uh, field of research? Oh, that's a great question. And, and I would say there's sort of two sources, one of which is academic, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but the other is um, multifaceted in terms of, of just recognizing fairly young that the places I was, my family lived in were kind of interesting physically. And if, you know, a lot of that involved, I mean, I lived in Connecticut for much of my life, early life, and walking around the neighborhood in which I lived, which was pounded into marshland in Darien, Connecticut, and realizing, although it was really great to skate in a swamp, when it froze, um, maybe that wasn't the best place for us to be because any kind of weather, storms included, hurricanes, our basements, everybody's basement flooded. And it was like, I was like seven or eight years old going down the stairs to this flooded basement. And I swear, I was looking at that going, this doesn't seem right. Not a good idea. Um, and I've sort of pursued that more professionally. Um, but, but it, it is interesting, you know, to see how suburbs in the 1950s and 60s were built in places that, that required bulldozers to flatten things and, and just sort of walking around those neighborhoods, walking as I did as a child playing with my friends in what's now we would say a second growth forest and coming across stone walls everywhere. Clearly, there was another set of people who lived here in a very different way. And that's been part of my goal, I think, in life is to try to figure out who those people are um, and excavate that past, which sounds like I knew that's what I was doing when I went off to do it in graduate school. And it wasn't. It's a retrospective analysis. But I think in some ways that that that's helpful to know that one's own biography ultimately plays a role in one's professional life or can. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we've heard so many stories of folks who have gone on to, to great careers after getting inspired by, you know, things in their childhood, which um, really sounds like it has for you. And so we're going to talk about floods in neighborhoods today um, as they, uh, you know, they occurred obviously in very different circumstances where you grew up. But uh, the new book that I already mentioned uh, is called West Side Rising, How San Antonio's 1921 Flood Devastated a City and Sparked a Latino Environmental Justice Movement. 
So can you start off by just kind of giving us a description of the 1921 storm and the flood that ensued and then how it affected San Antonio and his residents? Oh, gladly. So here's a story that anyone on the Gulf Coast region could tell about their cities at one point or another, that a tropical storm floated overhead, uh, dumped a lot of rain, and all of a sudden floods start flashing uh, in a particular way. But Texas has its own sort of framing of this kind of story. Uh, Harvey most recently, which dumped an astonishing amount of water on Houston, um, knows this tale well. But San Antonio, by its site, where it's located, has a particular history involved here that's climatological. To its immediate north is what's known as the hill country, the Edwards Plateau. Um, and that high ground, as it turns out, is crucially linked to the Gulf Coast itself and to the Gulf uh, of Mexico. So that as warm air pushes ashore in a sort of southwesterly fashion, as it does uh, normally, as it rises up to hit the Edwards Plateau, when warm air rises and hits colder air, all sorts of interesting things happen, including thunderstorms, which when we lived in San Antonio for 26 years, there were some doozies that basically rocked, literally rocked our house. Um, and so when those waters started falling in 1921 from this hurricane that is also floating through the same kind of geography and um, physical structure of South Texas, it just unleashed an amazing amount of rain in a very short period of time. So San Antonio only got about seven inches of rain, the downtown core, but to its north and the watersheds of its west side creeks and the eponymous river, the San Antonio River, got well over 17 inches in some places. And so two waves of water washed through San Antonio. On the west side, the creeks just blasted through the barrio, the site of some of the poorest communities in San Antonio at the time, not exclusively Hispanic or Mexican heritage, but mainly so. And then another wall of water came roaring down the San Antonio River that flushed the downtown core where the Anglo power elite had its businesses, its banks, its commercial entities and the like. Um, and those two flows of water actually joined in ways that they shouldn't unless it's in a flood, so that more than a mile wide um, flow of water captured both the west side and the downtown core. 80 people or more were killed, um, and it had a dramatic and traumatic impact on San Antonio. Its residents across the board um, were flushed out of their homes, and those who survived, at least on the west side, were very lucky to have done so. Yeah. And so um, can you now take us through kind of the next step in the story, which and obviously we're skipping over lots of interesting details, but, um, but you know, one of the next important steps is that after that 1921 flood, there's a response that the city takes, and, and that response contributes to an already existing pattern of discrimination in terms of housing and, uh, and environmental justice. So can you talk a little bit about the response and then the effects, particularly for you know the folks who lived in the barrio uh, on the west side of San Antonio. Yeah, so here's here's a thing that I think we often think about when we see disasters and need to interrogate more. It isn't that the disaster happens, even though that in this case that was clear. It's then following what the aftermath, like what do cities do in subsequent days and years um, to think out how 
in a policy wise, they're going to defend their city, whether it's a coastal place or a place like San Antonio, which the National Weather Service has indicated sits within what it calls Flash Flood Alley. And so that was part of what I was doing, was trying to think about the response to this flood and what that indicated about the community pre-flood as well as post-flood. So one of the things to note is that there's basically two narratives, the first of which is that covers basically the first three days after the September 9-10 flood of 1921, in which all of the newspapers, both Spanish language and English language, were narrating the struggle of the West Side, the death, damage, and disarray that just flattened that community. Within about three days, the narrative started to shift, at least for those power elite, uh, the large property owners on downtown. They all gestured and said, yes, this was terrible for the West Side. But what they really wanted was a dam that would prevent future floods from ripping through the downtown core, a dam to be built at a pinch point on the San Antonio River. And so you can immediately see the policy gears start to move as... Um, Rotary Club, as the U.S. Army, which was very involved in rescuing people and others, began to articulate how to build this dam, what it would cost, and what its benefits would be. While they're having that conversation and galvanizing public support for what would ultimately be a four-plus-million-dollar bond issue to build what's now called the Olmos Dam and straighten and concretize the San Antonio River, they still gestured to helping the West Side. But as it turns out, and I've gone through the city council meetings for the next decade, the funds that were promised were, I think, rarely spent. And I say that because there's very little conversation about what was done and what was not done. Um, but the consequences are, is that the dam worked brilliantly and continues to work brilliantly. But the West Side, in the 1930s, in the 1940s, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, went underwater every single time a flood erupted. And that suggests that what was supposed to have been done in the 1920s was not. Right. And that the benefits of the what was done, you know, accrued to a specific set of people with a, with a you know, entrenched power in, in the city. Right. And so one of the ways to think about that is um, the public funds were used to protect private property and private real estate values, where on the West Side, so little was done to do any of that. And so that's part of the pattern of discrimination that had it existed before and that now gets really concretized, literally made solid by the consequence of the construction of the dam. That's so interesting. And just just one more follow-up question, which is, you know, I, I've been to San Antonio several times. I imagine some of our listeners have too. And there's that, you know, Riverwalk downtown, which is super touristy now, um, but it's also kind of fun. And uh, is that concretized Riverwalk part of this set of investments or does that come along it, later? It, it comes along later, but it was only possible because the dam existed. Because once you could control the flow of the San Antonio River, you can then do whatever you want to do at the river level, which for decades people have been talking about, let's build this thing that we now call the Riverwalk. But every time they tried to put in trees and other kinds of things, a flood would rip through and tear whatever they had done apart. Now that there was a dam, you can do two things, one of which is to start to imagine a river walk, which is what happened and was built during the 1930s. And the other is at the street level, 
federal uh, local funds and venture capital money flowed into San Antonio simply because the dam was there that built the first skyline of the city. And so one of the chapters in the book sort of looks at these construction projects as a direct consequence of flood control, which meant that the downtown core, which was already the central economic hub of the city, became even more so, though if you walked a mile and a half to the west and entered into the west side, the economic conditions and the housing structures and the discrimination against its Mexican, black, and poor white populations continued unabated. Yeah. So let's turn now to, um, you know, it, probably several chapters later, uh, you know, zooming forward almost uh, or more than 50 years to 1974. Um, so what happened in 1974 and how did organizers and residents on the West Side who had, you know, suffered this long history of discrimination, how did they respond? So another flood in 1974 blew out of the Zarzamora Creek, which is one of the five creeks that run through the West Side, flushed entire neighborhoods out of their homes. No one died, thankfully. Uh, washed away cars, washed out bridges, uh, left a bunch of debris everywhere. And something kind of miraculous happened. Miraculous only because not everyone in the city knew that this was about to occur. But the West Side got angry. And it had an organization now that had been cultivating connections and uh, sort of grassroots organizing for the prior two years. And the genius behind this is a guy by the name of Ernie Cortez, who had spent the previous two years walking through neighborhoods, talking to parish leaders, gathering together, mostly women, um, to build this new organization that in time would call itself COPS, Communities Organized for Public Services. And that 1971 flood was the galvanizing moment that COPS came to the surface of political life in San Antonio and in a series of very bold moves, fundamentally changed the political structure of the city. It seems like it's a movie script, um, and you wouldn't believe it if a movie script did it, except that it's true. So there's a couple of things that happen. The first of which is cops organized a public meeting with the city manager of the city of San Antonio. He came to one of the local high schools, not knowing what was about to happen. And frankly, probably no one really knew what was about to happen. And he thought he was going to talk to people about flood control. Well, it turns out they were going to talk to him. And so they ran a slide projector show showing him what has been happening over the decades. They pulled out the budget for the city over the last 30 years and said, see, this is where you committed to funding of flood control on the west side, but it hasn't been done. Now, what are you going to do about it? Well, if I was the city manager, I would be perplexed because rarely had the West Side been there in force on political discussions before. But now it's very clear that this is a totally different um, world that's about to unfold. And so when he said to the crowd, look, I don't make the decisions. And they said, who does? He said, the city council. And they said, put us on the next agenda. Well, the city council showed up for the, its next meeting. And there were 500 people in the small city council chambers. And the moment the first speaker rose, the whole audience rose and then wind up and wrapped themselves around her so that the council suddenly was alerted that this is not your ordinary city council meeting. And they turned it into a, a withering critique of the city's 
neglect of the West Side, its systemic racism that is embedded in that neglect. And at one point, the city's mayor said to the city manager, is what they're telling me true? And he goes, it is. And he said, you have four hours to find the requisite money that we have promised for 40 years and never spent. And it happened. He came back in four hours. They found money. And over the next decade, COPS was able to wrangle federal monies like model city monies coming out of the LBJ administration and a host of state and most especially local budgetary uh, outlays. Half a billion dollars in the next 10 years to build flood control, to harden the streets, to bring in potable water, to do all of the things that any neighborhood should have had, but these neighborhoods did not have access to. There are parts of the West Side up through the 1960s that did not have water mains, even though a mile away, which is where many of them had to walk, there was potable water everywhere. So the neglect is not just historic and it's not just racist, though it is. It's also an environmental justice issue um, that COPS is calling the question on. And it really radically changed the nature of life in San Antonio because then they went after the political structure. And real briefly, San Antonio at that time was at-large elections. Members running for city council were voted by everybody in the city. Well, the West Side political relationship to the city had been attenuated in part because nobody listened to it. So nobody voted or few people voted, which meant that Anglos dominated the city council. The Department of Justice came in at roughly the same time, told the city that that was an illegal form of governance and electoral. Cops then rallied its neighborhoods. Everybody voted to support what's now called a single member district and instantly, city council in the next election began to actually look like the demographics of the city itself. And Henry Cisneros was first elected and ultimately would become mayor. Um, and the, the triumph is that this grassroots organization, COPS, was able to develop the political calculus to change not just the environmental justice issues, but also the political representation issues that have been long lacking in the city of San Antonio. That's so fascinating. And it, and it makes me think about, you know, the legacy of that, because there have been, you know, numerous leaders coming out of San Antonio, Latino leaders. I'm thinking of the, um, the Castro brothers uh, who have been very successful. And I, there are probably other examples as well. There are. And, you know, the Castro brothers stood on the shoulders of Henry Cisneros. Henry Cisneros stood on the shoulders of Henry B. Gonzalez, who was elected uh, as the first Hispanic um, congressional representative from the state of Texas in 1960. And he really broke one of the barriers that had been long um, troubling the West Side, which is once he got seniority, he started turning the spigot to funding the first kind of flood control in the West Side that had been promised in 1921 and had never been delivered. And then COPS emerges on his shoulders, as would Henry Cisneros. Um, and we have this, this essentially a kind of pipeline. So Cisneros became the Secretary of HUD. Uh, Julian Castro, who wrote the foreword for the book, becomes the Secretary of HUD. Um, and many others have gone out that way. And one of the things to note about COPS's behavior and activism is that it didn't just keep its ideas on the West Side. It created what became called, at least informally, the University of Cops, 
activists from Tucson and Phoenix and Los Angeles and Chicago and Miami and Houston flowed to San Antonio to learn what cops had done. And members of cops went to these other places to both train and activate community organizations. So Ernie Cortez left San Antonio, his hometown, uh, ended up in Los Angeles and did for um, the east side of Los Angeles what he had done for the west side in San Antonio. And so there's this intersectional play that's taking place that is really a kind of radical transformation in the Southwest and in communities that had large Mexican or Mexican heritage um, barrios um, everywhere in the United States. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, um, you know, we've been talking about uh, this concept of environmental justice, and we've had other shows on environmental justice where we've spoken with other experts, and you know, different people sort of trace its roots to different times and places. One common, uh, you know, origin story comes from the late 1970s in North Carolina uh, around the siting of hazardous waste. Um, did the activists uh, in the COPS organization think of themselves or think of what they were doing as environmental justice? Was that term around? And then, like, just like, how do you see these events as fitting into the larger narrative of the emergence of the environmental justice movement? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they did understand, and I use this term, streetscape environmentalism, to describe the coupled network of issues that COPS was raising. They were looking at flood control. They were looking at streets, literally the streets themselves. They were thinking about water and water mains and access to such things because they were also worried about public health issues. The West Side had historically been racked by communicable diseases that depend upon the fact that its people did not have ready and free access to potable water. Um, so they had, in fact, one of their early names was going to be committees focused on drainage or something like that. Um, but they went more broadly with public services. But they saw public service as an environmental set of issues. And we know that in part because no sooner had they made uh, inroads in, in the city political life than they immediately went to the east side and developed relationships with grassroots organizing there for bettering streets, bettering housing, bettering public health, and also linked up with North Side Anglo activists to protect the community's sole source of water, the Edwards Aquifer. So they were thinking broadly environmental, though they don't use the language of environmental justice. That won't really come to fore in terms of, you know, maybe a half a decade or more later in North Carolina. Um, but that's what they were doing. So some of what I'm trying to do in the book is not only surface what the West Side was doing on its own behalf and through its own language and activism, but also to say that, you know, there are multiple sources to this environmental justice movement. And it has sort of long reach. And COPS was particularly brilliant in sort of moving beyond itself. But interestingly, and, a, and it was not an organization that I knew much about, in the 1920s, there was a group that predated COPS by now 50-something years that had emerged on the West Side. It was called Cruz Azul, Blue Cross, um, that had jumped in, literally jumped into the waters of the 1921 flood to rescue people. It, too, was parish-based. It, too, was led by women who immediately then beat the Red Cross at its own game of providing food, shelter, and clothing to the devastated, and then immediately sent out chapter representatives to found in other inundated communities similar organizations. So there's been this long tradition on the West Side 
of reaching out to others who are equally destitute, equally powerless, and saying, you know what, this is how we build power. This is how we build resilience. And that, to me, sort of says that environmental justice, whether it's got that title or not, is a long-standing attribute of San Antonio's West Side and its efforts to reach out to other communities that are suffering similarly. Yeah. And so, you know, there is such a rich history here, and obviously we're just scratching the surface. Um, We've been talking about the past. Let's talk briefly about the present and the future. So as climate change exacerbates uh, numerous environmental risks, including severe weather, like, you know, um, heavy rainfall during storms, uh, hurricanes, wildfires, other risks, what are some of the lessons or, you know, insights that you would glean from from this experience that you describe in your book, West Side Rising, uh, that can really inform movements, uh, either local grassroots movements or larger policymaking efforts uh, at the federal level? Yeah, I think there's a direct line between the environmental justice activism that emerged in the 1970s as as it was described, although I think it's got a longer history than that, with those who are calling for a climate justice movement, because in fact, they share both sort of heritage on the one hand and conception on the other. So if we think about climate justice in a, in a place like Miami or Mumbai or Lagos, Nigeria, um, we're looking at the impact that sea level rise will have on low-lying neighborhoods around the globe. And we've got all of the maps we ever need to sort of see what is happening. Uh, the Bay Area in the United States will be uh, lose much of its uh, bay shore, uh, in part because it's infill, and that's not going to last. Um, and so when we think about justice, both environmental and climatological in this sense, um, it seems to me that what COPS did can be transferable and scaled up. And I think COPS is not alone anywhere on the planet. I think there are many organizations that have been working on this. But part of what I would suggest is um, useful in terms of thinking about COPS is that the work that somebody does in the Cook Islands, which are starting to disappear, um, and other coastal areas that are troubled, need to be connected with, and we need to be aware of, their efforts so that we can build capacity, uh, share best practices, and galvanize communities that think they're fighting, and rightly so, for their own safety, when in fact that safety is tied to my safety and to yours and to those who are listening to this podcast. So I think one of the things that I've learned um, directly from COPS and living in San Antonio for as long as I did and watching its broad-based activism uh, intersectional in its reach is that that's what we need to be mimicking. Um, when we're now talking about a global existential crisis, we need to make sure that everyone is engaged and most especially recognize that local communities have the resilience, they have the talent, they have the insight. Um, but what we can help do is to facilitate the building of alliances across this planet that may actually help us survive um, this this human-caused anthropogenic climate change. So let's, um, uh, as our last question, before we go to the top of the stack segment, um, just zoom in one more time uh, back to San Antonio. And as you said, you lived there for a long time. You don't live there currently, but I, I'm sure you still have a good finger on the pulse of what's happening in the city. Um, how would you describe the current state of environmental justice issues in San Antonio? Um, 
Obviously, you described some uh, amazing progress that occurred in the 1970s and beyond. But what do you think um, things look like today in terms of the progress that's been made and what more still needs to be accomplished? So one of the things that that the sort of legacy of cops, and it's still pushing these things, but it's not the only one who's pushing them, that has done is tried to make San Antonio, the, the city itself, much more resilient in a way that is striking to me, at least. Those very west side creeks that were the source of so much death, damage, and disarray and the 21 flood and floods before that and floods after that until the flood control issues went into play, is this is really a two-step process. So let's say you finally convince, as COPS does, the city to spend money to build the flood control networks. Deeper creeks, wider creeks, concretized creeks. That's not a really pretty sight. It works, but it's not going to draw people back to those creeks. And in the 1980s, 1990s, there was this idea that emerged, and I was lucky to be on the Open Space Advisory Board for the city at the time, and this was all new to me. Um, and I walk in to the first meeting, and the folks on this, a highly diverse organization with people from all over the city, were talking about creating linear parks along the West Side Creeks. And I just went crazy because like what a brilliant conception of a city that has both rivers and creeks running through it is to think about those rivers and creeks not just as natural systems but natural systems that allows us to build passive recreation bike lanes that allow people to commute down those creeks into the downtown core and pretty easily as it turns out so you use nature as a way to do a couple of things that are absolutely crucial it took time this was in the 1990s, but today there are 60 miles of these linear creeks. And I've walked some of them, particularly on the, on the weekends. And they are filled with folks who live nearby, who are bicycling, walking, picnicking, turning those creeks, which once were flood channels, and before that, these sort of dry arroyos, into something that is bettering not only the physical nature of the community, you get rid of concrete and you bring in trees and native grasses and other kinds of things. You make it aesthetically pleasing, even as it is helping the earth to breathe. And then you better public health by giving people access to parks um, that are linear in this case, but a joy to walk on with your peers. And so part of that is, let's think about a place like New York City or DC. Rock Creek Park is a classic example of this, but it can only serve so many needs. So let's think about how we can use these natural systems, rivers, creeks, or whatever they may be, that will further the public health on the one hand and also the environmental health on the other. And that's an interplay that I think can be really critically involved um, anywhere in the United States, and at least in San Antonio's life. The Riverwalk was there first. It's basically been ceded to tourists, but these West Side Creeks and East Side Creeks are actually helping the citizens of San Antonio even more. And that, it seems to me, is a win-win. Yeah, that's so interesting. And um, 
as we close it out, I'll, I'll just, you know, congratulate you on, on the book and, and thank you for coming on the show. I mean, it's such a fascinating story that I had never heard of, and I imagine many of our listeners are new to it as well. So let's move now to our top of the stack segment, where we ask you to recommend something uh, that you've read or watched or heard uh, that is related to the environment or not that you'd recommend to our listeners. And uh, I'll start us off with something that doesn't exist yet, uh, but something you said earlier, Char, makes me think maybe it should, which is that maybe someone should option uh, your book for a new movie. West Side Rising seems like a reasonable movie title. And, um, you know, given the dramatic nature of many of the events, it seems like it could lend itself pretty well for uh, to a screenplay. And I know you're in Los Angeles now or close to it. So maybe you could find somebody to uh, to <laughs> hook up on that. Yeah, I actually have my eyes on Alex Gibney, who is, you know, everywhere, the documentarian of the United States. We actually went to high school together and I'm trying to reach out to him and say, this is a really cool topic. It would be great to have a documentary, if not a full-fledged film. Um, because in part, it's, um, it is a dramatic story and there are dramatic moments all the way through it. And that, you know, is for an historian was a joy to surface and find in various ways. Um, but it also served a larger purpose, these, these events, because it forced me to think about questions I hadn't really thought of as an historian and an urban activist before, um, and to recognize Interestingly, for me, at least, when I moved to Los Angeles is, first of all, L.A., like San Antonio, is in a flood basin. L.A., like San Antonio, is a Spanish-built city in a flood basin, um, and that many of the issues that it confronts, both cities confront with flooding, were quite similar. But unusually, it turns out that one of the things San Antonio has pioneered as a result of its floods should be adopted by California because of wildfires. And let me just take a a brief tour here that after the 1998 and 2002 floods, which devastated parts of San Antonio that had not received flood control, the county and city spent millions of dollars to buy up houses from willing sellers in the floodplains that those two floods identified and that no one had really thought about. And it was it's a remarkable system that Houston has since copied after Harvey. And when I was watching that and now living in L.A., I went, well, why don't we do that with fire zones? Why are we not getting in there after the fire zones and offering willing sellers the chance to get out of harm's way and incentivize the process in the before fire period, like we know where the fire zones are, and yet we build them to burn. That didn't seem like really good public policy. So so there's an adaptation that's possible also coming out of San Antonio. Um, and, I, you know, that too could be a really interesting piece to a documentary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Char Miller, thank you so much for coming on today onto Resources Radio to tell us about your book, West Side Rising. We'll have a link to it in the chat. And when the movie comes out, we'll make sure to highlight it here as well. And we'll have you back and maybe Alex Gibney and we'll do a, a movie release party or something. That like would be that. awesome. Thank you so much, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, 
energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.